Public health is a population-based field of science focused on preventing disease and promoting health. Every week, we will be engaging in interactive discussions and analyses of the latest public health issues affecting you and your communities all around the world. This is the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is Gordon, and I'm here with our public health panel, Ben, LaShawn, Sully, Will, and a special guest who will be introduced later. Before we move on, it is important to note that the views expressed in this podcast are our own and do not represent any of the organizations we work for or are affiliated with. The World Health Organization declared COVID-19 a pandemic on Wednesday, March 11th, and the situation continues to worsen for many countries around the world. Lost in all of this is the rapid propagation of misinformation on the internet and on social media. In an article titled Misinformation, Fake News and Our Health by Elaine Nassosi, a computational epidemiologist at Boston University, discusses some of the consequences of the spread of misinformation. In this episode, we'll be using COVID-19 pandemic as a case study to highlight the real dangers of misinformation when they result in behavioral changes, minimizing the effectiveness of important public health measures. To help us discuss this incredibly complex issue, we have invited a special guest. Dr. Sajad Fazal is a health researcher at Alberta Health Services, where he conducts research on cancer prevention and COVID-19 misinformation. Sajad holds a Doctor of Pharmacy degree from Manipal University and a Master of Public Health from Western University. He is an outspoken public health advocate, and he regularly appears as a guest on various media outlets, most recently on CBC News Calgary. Dr. Fazal, thank you for joining our discussion of this important topic. Thank you for having me. Before we can understand the public health dangers of misinformation, the best place to begin is by defining it. So Dr. Fazal, what is health misinformation? Um, yeah, it's a great question. I think when we look at health misinformation, we can say it's uh, false claims, um, inaccurate claims that are not based on scientific uh, facts or evidence. Um, and this includes myths uh, um, and rumors also um, about various uh, health topics. So the important thing here is, you know, we were reading the article. We we're all going through trying to educate ourselves on the various ways misinformation is, you know, created and spread. And um, one of the important things, you know, we found is the intentionality is an important factor. So, you know, sometimes you have consumers such as, you know, ourselves who can also, even though we weren't the ones to create the misinformation, we can also propagate and give it traction by spreading spreading it and sharing it to our friends and family. Is that something that uh, you find is important? A lot of research is being done to to stop the spread of misinformation and, you know, creating misinformation by combating it with facts. But then when you have people like myself, you know, my mom sends me um, videos and articles every day with, oh, COVID-19, you know, it's caused by 5G. So now she is contributing to the spread. She's kind of a bystander. And now she's, even though she didn't create information, she can reach a lot more people who can then act on it and cause more harm to themselves. Yeah, you're actually absolutely right. I mean, I receive a lot of messages that say, oh, you should eat garlic. <laughs> it's going to be COVID-19. Um, so yeah, you're right. Um, and I think the spread of misinformation, and you touched upon a great point, um, there's two sets of things. There's one that the spread of misinformation is deliberately uh, spread by people who gain from it um, mm. in one way or the other. And then there's the other aspect, 
which is the public and uh, and uh, somebody else who just uh, forwards as received or just shares the post that somebody sent to him or tagged him on and i think uh, one of the ways um to actually stop the spread of misinformation and one of the messages that we need to get out to the public is do not forward as received do not share um the post that you get uh, have a look at it read it um fact check it against websites um and then share it um if it's accurate and if it's not accurate uh, just delete it um and if you don't mind i'll actually share this uh, so there's a study been done by dr gordon pennycook um who is uh, studying misinformation and looks at the psychology aspect of it um and uh, he coined and there's this word that they use it's called cognitive miser um these mm. are people who have the intelligence um to differentiate between accurate and inaccurate information but they just uh, share it um there was a study that found that uh, tw- uh, that looked at fake news and stuff and 25% of the people in that study uh new uh, thought that the fake news was true but mm. 35% of the people shared it which means 10% more people shared it despite knowing that maybe this is not true um and you see different studies looking at a variety of things for example if you share something um any any statement and then you have an image attached next to it so if you see something about covid-19 and you have a picture of the virus people are more likely to think that that information is true Similarly um if you if you repeat statements within uh within an article it's more likely that somebody thinks it's going to be true so there are these uh, mm-hmm. uh things that people who propel misinformation use um uh, and i think we all have to be careful and stop and think and say wait a minute is this true am i sharing something because it's true oftentimes people when they share something they say oh this is going to help somebody or this is going to benefit somebody well it might not benefit him and actually might cause detriment to him if what you're sharing uh, uh is false dr faisal that was a very good point i wanted to kind of follow up with that and ask so when you mentioned these cognitive misers who tend to despite knowing that it's untruth still going on and forwarding these messages did the study ex- kind of explain or explore why why they continue to do this despite knowing that it's false information um i think mo- what happens um for most of the times is that um it's how people think of it right when you receive the information um if if you think of it in terms of oh i i received this i should share it out or oh i received this i think i should i should send it to people instead of oh i received this let me really see what it is um i think that mindset um mm. is what leads uh, people to just share things and, and oftentimes i think you would have seen it also um from family and friends sharing things they write or oh, forward is received as if mm. that sort of mm. makes them uh, not responsible uh for sharing misinformation which is actually uh very false yeah it seems like it's almost part of like a social activity rather than actually going in and um critiquing and actually looking at the facts and just kind of forwarding it sending it for the sake of doing it because that's what everyone else is kind of doing and you want to just follow along yeah absolutely um and and that is the one side of it the other side of it is actually those who actually propel uh misinformation um and false uh, uh, claims because they are benefiting from it and if you don't mind i can touch up on this uh, part as well Please. um yeah so when you look at people who are benefiting 
I generally see them um, in different categories. So there are those who spread the myth that uh, um, uh, uh, this COVID-19 is a hoax, COVID-19 is a deep state conspiracy, COVID-19 was created by a lab in Wuhan, COVID-19 was created in the United States. The people who propagate these types of myths um, benefit from it politically. Um, and they benefit from it because they are railing up their base um, and their supporters and those who believe in conspiracy theories. So there is a political gain there. The other mm -hmm. set of people are those who actually spread uh, myths uh, um, and false claims about immune boosting pills, um, herbal medications, um, and, and these people benefit from it financially. And some of these people are actually celebrities um, who, who share these myths uh, and false claims and, 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 and benefit from it financially, including uh, various salespeople. Um, mm. So that is the second group of people. And then the third group of people are those who benefit from it sort of socially, you can say. Um, there is a YouTuber in India who is whose whole page is just about uh, uh, spreading misinformation and myths about uh, the COVID-19. One of some of the myths that he shares uh, includes uh, uh, drinking cow urine, um, uh, drinking alcohol. Um, the other thing he shared last time was this uh, this myth that has gone around. You, you all must have heard it that uh, if you hold your breath for ten seconds and if you don't cough, you don't have COVID. It has mm -hmm. spread so much that yeah. the World Health Organization debunked it. Um, so, so things like this, uh, and what he gets is he gets more viewers, right? And I think right. this also highlights the gap because you'd think now, why would people believe in something like this? I mean, some of these things are very preposterous out there. But then you, you see, because the, the science is still developing, it's still evolving because there is a lot we don't know. It creates this gap for misconception, um, and conspiracy theories. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dr. Fazel, I had a question, and it was back to your point of cognitive misers, because I have my own anecdotal experience where family and friends will always share before they think, and that's a good point because, you know, they're uncertain, and one of the things that you, we ask people to do is think critically about the information that they're presented with, but in your expertise, what would you do in a scenario where people are uncertain with their own knowledge, therefore they share it to have some sort of feedback, and that sharing is aiding that misinformation? Right. No, and that's a very good question. And, and, and that's how things are today. And you also raised an important point that people are unsure, right? Mm -hmm. That means they are, they are doubtful. And, and, and uh, if you see, if you see the misinformation these days, um, it's, it's not blatantly wrong in all cases. So for example, um, I received a WhatsApp message that talked about the coronavirus. And generally, viruses can survive in what type of pHs and what type of pHs they cannot survive in, for example, mm -hmm. right? Now, somebody wrote that information and they quoted it from a, from a, from a study and from a well-known source. And then they went on and continued and saying, well, these are fruits that have a high pH. And if you eat them, you won't get COVID-19. So it's mm -hmm. a mixture of accurate information and inaccurate information, uh. Mm -hmm. And I think that makes it more difficult for people to discern: is this true? Is this false? Because there is there is a mixture of of truth and 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 false claims um, in there. And so, yeah, that does make people unsure. And I think my advice uh, uh, to to everyone would be: if you are unsure, don't share it. Um, mm -hmm. If you really want to know whether it's beneficial. I mean, you really want to help others get true information. Why don't you check it against a well-known site? Otherwise, if you're unsure, do not share it at all. Because the risk of harming somebody from that misinformation is higher than that benefit. 
because at the end of the day, public health messaging continues and you're better off. And I would say to people that instead of sharing what you just received, you're better off going to um, various governmental and public health agency and authority websites and Instagram accounts and Twitter. Um, health Canada has their own Instagram account called Healthy Canadians. So you can go through all these um, platforms and, and share the information they have, which is some cool graphics and things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. So, yeah, those are great resources you mentioned. Um, however, I kind of wanted to move into more of um, the anti-vaccine movement negatively has influenced the progress of controlling vaccine-preventable diseases. For example, there's been decreases in the immunization rates in school-aged children, and it has contributed to recent outbreaks such as measles and mumps. So why do you think misinformation is dangerous to public health? Yeah, so one of the reasons that that, that, that you rightfully mentioned is that Misinformation and research has shown this um, that misinformation um, and what the media states out there um, and what we consume on social media does influence behaviors. It does. Um, there was a study that uh, that that looked at uh, this celebrity um, who who was talking about the importance of breast cancer in Australia um, and the number of uh, uh, the number of self. Uh, uh, self-referred breast cancer screenings for that month jumped up by almost 20-40%. Um, mm-hmm. So we do know that information and misinformation does uh, 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 does change behaviors. I mean, the president of the United States talking about uh, hydroxychloroquine led somebody to drink a hypochlorite solution and uh, they ended up uh, dead. So mm-hmm. you, you, you do see in various cases, I mean, in Iran, there was a myth... Uh, uh, that if you drink high strength alcohol, um, it will kill COVID-19 and it killed 50, uh, about 50, 59 people over there. Um, mm. and this was just a couple of weeks ago. So we do see that misinformation can harm people's, uh, um, uh, behave, can change people's behavior and harm their lives. On top of that, it can underscore, uh, public health measures, um, and, and make people feel either immune or it can make people uh, feel uh, have fear and anxiety, which can lead to suicide. And we do know that some people have committed suicide because of the fear of COVID-19. So, Dr. Fazel, my question to you is, some research studies have shown that there are many cases where false information is spread more quickly than the truth on social media platforms. And we also know that a lot of public health measures use social media platforms as a means to reach the public. Which leads me to the question, is social media our friend our enemy or somewhere in the between like a frenemy? Yeah, <laughs> great question. <laughs> I think I'd go with frenemy <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Uh, the way I look at uh, uh, social media, it's a tool. It's a tool um, that can be used in the right way or the wrong way. You can use a car to take your friends out uh, to the mountains. Um, well, not in this time, but mm. yeah. <laughs> uh, and you can use a car to run over people, right? Right. Um, and we know of both instances in Canada. So um, I think it's a tool just like any other in how you use it. Yes, it's true that misinformation spreads faster than accurate information. Um, and I think, uh, and you have come to a very important point that I wanted to discuss today. It is how can we improve health communication? I mean, when I look at things and I say, wait a minute, doesn't this show that there is a gap um, in the way we communicate to the public? Doesn't this show that we need to um, improve our game, so to speak, as public health professionals when we um, educate the public? 
How many mm-hmm. public health units in Canada have a social media account on Instagram? How many mm-hmm. public health units use memes? Why can't we use memes? Today I made a mm-hmm. nice meme about COVID-19 misinformation. <laughs> and and I mean, <laughs> the depart uh, the state of Ohio, their Department of Health. Have you seen the 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 video they shared about social distancing? No, we no. haven't. Yeah, so so I'll tell you. I'll just describe it. Um, it's a it's a room. Uh, the tiles are black in the room. Um, there is mouse traps everywhere. I'm trying to try to make it descriptive so you can imagine it. Um, there's <laughs> ping pong balls on the mouse traps, and the mouse traps and ping pong balls are kept quite. Uh, we, are kept quite close together, all the mousetraps. And then somebody throws a ping pong ball and it hits one of the mousetraps, which makes all, which makes that ping pong ball go all over the place and mm-hmm. it continues, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And then they do the same thing, except this time the mousetraps with ping pong balls are kept separately. And when the guy throws this one ping pong ball, it goes in between all those mousetraps. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. they just say social distancing works. Yeah. Beautiful uh, message. It went yeah, viral right. on social media. Right. Now my concept my personal philosophy is let us make public health viral. Why not? Why not? Why can't we collaborate with celebrities um, who are ready to collaborate with public health uh, and help spread the message? Um, why can't we work with uh, media companies um, that do advertising for some of the biggest companies like Coca-Cola, PepsiCo? I mean, some of these companies, if you see their ads, they always go viral. It's because they work with uh, uh, marketing agencies that have a pulse on, with the public, right? They know what's <laughs> trending. They know what's going on. Um, I don't think it's it's effective anymore to put up a billboard and say smoking kills. It's <laughs> it, it it's probably not as effective to say, let's say, the younger demographic than having a meme about it or having a a, a Twitter post about it or an Instagram uh, IGTV video. So I think the way we look at health communication. Um, is important. And just to add on another point, and then I'd like to hear all your thoughts on this, mm-hmm. um, is that I think as health professionals, when we address misinformation, how we do it, um, oftentimes uh, you would see uh, health professionals or a doctor or, or someone like that, when they see somebody uh, posting something that's not true or writing to them an information that's not true, they just disregard it and say, Oh yeah, no, this is not true. This is false. This is fake news. This is um, unnecessarily. Well, what about empathizing with that person, trying to mm-hmm. understand from what perspective they are coming from, and then s- sort of logically making an argument? Um, and I think sometimes, sometimes we lack this when we just disregard um, all these myths and rumors. Now, granted, you won't be able to convince everyone on board. There are people who believe in conspiracy theories and they're diehard fans of them. Mm-hmm. But those who are on the fence, and there's a large group of people who are on the fence, I think they can be convinced if we are open to empathize and say, okay, why does he think like this? What mm. makes him say this? What's, what background has he had? Now, if somebody has been growing in an ethno-cultural community like myself, where we believe in herbal medications and things mm. like this, it's not, it's not odd for, for, for my uh, grandmother, for example, to say that, hey, eat garlic is going to be good for you or, or eat honey is going to be good for you. Does honey have slight antibacterial properties? It does. Is it mm-hmm. going to help you against COVID-19? No way in hell. But grandma <laughs> is going to message you saying, hey, you know, um, honey will help COVID-19. Now, that doesn't mean that uh, 
that she's outward completely uh, wrong in the sense she's obviously wrong but mm. you have to understand which perspective she's coming from and be like mm. well this is this is this might help you soothe your throat it has slight antibacterial properties but it's not going to help you with covid-19 um, or a major throat infection for that case so i think it's understanding and sort of having that logical argument um and, and oftentimes you'd see inaccurate information which spreads faster they're normally simple to understand um they may not make sense if you look at it uh, from a scientific perspective but for mm-hmm. somebody sitting there um it's a very simple message that they put out and then oftentimes when public health tries to respond with something very complex and complicated that's where we lose because you you just shut out all these people who are who just want a quick uh, simple message Mm. Absolutely. And um I love the point that you brought up with it being too complicated because I believe I completely understand where you're coming from with the empathy, but I think a lot of the miscommunication that happens is at front the evidence is very scientific and when we look at published re- research articles, it's a different language if we're being honest. Like the general public, it's not very accessible. So I feel like when we have to communicate with from a public health lens, we have to learn how to maybe format things and consider what is plain language. what are the reading levels of our target population and those factors should be taken into account absolutely so i wanted to kind of address what you said about the empathy component i think it's really important especially when you couple that with for example those uh cultural or traditional remedies or experiences that people often tell and i think that's a really good point that you mentioned about something like honey or something like lemons that are typically associated with you know a- antibacterial properties and that you know around the social media you feel like a lot of people are seeing that those that messaging kind of be be passed and i think that mm. it's during this whole pandemic um, that we're going through right now i think it's very important to not demonize these traditional cultural knowledge or just ways of life that people have kind of been following for generations because that's how they were brought up right i think one thing i really in- appreciated from the WHO was actually Dr. Mike Ryan him addressing one of the reporters who asked him about a case in Russia where in in, in um I think it was a, a town or a village people were stockpiling ginger because that was thought to be you know have a lot of antibacterial properties and his the way he answered that was um you know what if if you think ginger is is going to help you and it doesn't provide any um negative effects to you then go ahead you no know, take ginger take lemon take your honey take whatever natural remedies you like but just make sure you make that distinction that it does that it's not the cure i think there's definitely in this whole covid crisis there is still a place for these traditional remedies and i think that we need to be mindful of that and not automatically discount them from the start excellent point excellent point you're absolutely right if 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 and this is what i normally say um when i talk about this this point and i tell people that you have cancer patients um who say they they don't get sleep unless they have let's say chamomile tea of le- or lemon ginger tea i mean you're like well that's not harmful to them and you're like mm-hmm. yeah sure if if that helps you go ahead but when somebody says oh this cures cancer for example i remember somebody told me that carrot juice cures and i was like no no wait a minute that is not true <laughs> so i think i think i think it it, it, it you look at things and and if it's somebody talking about something that that's helpful for them or something that's a personal choice but then when you come to to talk about how it affects diseases or how uh, whether it's it, it's going to cause a detriment then i think we can say oh wait a minute you know you you so, so i think it's it's that balance uh, as you mm-hmm. mentioned 
yeah, just to go back to one of your point, and we have this discussion all the time. Sometimes it feels like the scientific community has, you know, the evidence under lock and key, and it's almost like, you know, the public isn't worthy of that information. And if you need to access, oh, does carrot juice cure cancer? You need to come through me. Well, while you're going through all the steps to, to maybe get credible information, which may be more hard, maybe harder to find, it's easier to find information that doesn't have any scientific base to it. So I think public mm-hmm. health in general should be putting more resources into knowledge translation through the social media platforms like you mentioned. Why can't we do some of the things that regular marketing companies do on social media? You know, if it's credible and scientific-based evidence, then it can only help the situation. Yep, this is why I like this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, thank you. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah, thank you. That, that was a very good point. And, and it's nice because there are a couple of things uh, that I was thinking about regarding this topic that we should cover, uh, especially some, some things that would be helpful, not only to the public, but also to fellow health professionals. Um, you're absolutely right. Yeah, we do need knowledge translation. And I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, there is a, a, a place in Calgary... There's one in Toronto, there's one in the United States, there's a couple in the United States as well. It's called uh, Blue Room, okay? So mm. they have been putting out YouTube videos that if you come into this Blue Room, which they have UV lights in there, it's like a sauna type thing, but it just says UV lights, right? Um, and they put it out there and they advertise that if you get inside this Blue Room, um, it will cure cancer and other diseases, which is first of all, false. And second of all, we do know that UV light is a carcinogen. So instead of helping somebody cure cancer, they're probably giving somebody, increasing the chances of getting cancer. Um, and, and now when you see that, when you see their website, um, they did mention of a study that, that showed that uh, the UV light has certain benefits with the uh, blood flow, um, has certain benefits uh, with uh, sleep. Has a, now, if you look at that study, it was an animal study done on rats. Does mm. mm. one Animal study done on rats, nothing done on humans, just one study. So what happens is this group of people took that one study, construed it um, to fit their purposes, and then they put it up on their website. Now, somebody who is not literate can, uh, and when I say literate, I don't mean somebody who can read and write. I mean like science literate, evidence-based literate, will look at that and, 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 and may say, oh, this could be true. Let me try it out. So it's so this 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 outlines a couple of things which which I want to talk about and that's that that's the responsibility of researchers um, and the responsibility of the media. So one, yes, we need to increase resources um, in terms of knowledge translation, and I'm so glad that the Canadian Institute of Health Research um, and other funding agencies have put a very strong uh, point to make sure that uh, researchers. Um, uh, uh, have some sort of KT plan. So that's a good, great step uh, from the beginning. Second of all, I think it's important for health researchers to talk to the media about their research. Oftentimes you'd see a research was done, it was put out there, and then the media comes and picks it up or the public picks it up and sort of doesn't look at the whole study, doesn't look at the flaws, doesn't look at the bias, just looks at some of the uh, conclusions or some of the statements made and says, oh, this is the headline. For example, hydroxychloroquine cures COVID-19. Well, where did mm-hmm. it say that, right? Um, so I think, I think it's, 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 it's the responsibility 
of researchers to communicate their research and their conclusion well. If there is a, if, if it's, if it's, if something is plausible, if something is, works only under certain conditions, it's important to mention that. Um, and then the, the, the other uh, responsibility comes on the media. When they are picking up these research or when they are reading it, they should have the science literacy to be able to, to, um, accurately uh, say what the research has said instead of just making these clickbait headlines. Mm. So that is uh, the other aspect when it comes to this uh, evidence-based literacy and, and science literacy um, in general when it comes to these things. I mean, and then the other thing also is how um, the public perceives all this thing. And this is another point, and then it would, would be nice to hear all your thoughts about it, um, is that look at the masks thing, right, for COVID-19. Right. There have been a number of headlines, if you have seen in the past, uh, I guess, three weeks ago um, about or two weeks ago about uh, how public health professionals were wrong, how um, they said don't wear masks and then wear masks and all this. I mean, till right now, wearing a mask has a very small benefit, right? right. Um, it's a very small incremental benefit compared to the larger benefit of staying home, uh, uh, social mm -hmm. distancing, contract tracing. Um, but, but that is something that has been made publicly. Now, a lot of people were like, oh, public health has flip-flopped or things like this, which is not the case. And I think mm. this comes back to, have we as health professionals clearly communicated from the beginning that this right. is an evolving place mm -hmm. and research mm -hmm. is still developing and that we policies may change? Did we clearly and explicitly say that? I doubt it. Right. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think in terms of health communication, um, and, and how we, we take research and sort of look at things is important. It's also important to understand. I mean, there are people who will send you research about one thing or the other thing and tell you, Hey, but this person said this, that person said that. So for example, you must have heard of the myth about COVID-19 and 5G, correct? Right. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah. My mom, and, my mom and, was trying to sell me on that one. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> would be interesting to hear how you handle that <laughs> oh, I said mom I'll call you back later <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah I, um, if, if, if you see that myth uh, one of my cousins sent me a video where you see health professionals um, and a few researchers talk about this topic and they support it um, look at look at anti-vaccine there, there, there was a bogus study being done right Mm -hmm. um, look at anti-fluoride. There is a professor of dentistry at the, well, the former professor of dentistry at the University of Toronto who's peddling that conspiracy too. So there are health professionals and researchers who are peddling false myths as well. Mm. And I think this is something to understand. Health research and public health uh, um, and just the health professional in general is not all rosy. I mean, Dr. Oz went on the on the television a couple of days ago to say that, oh, we should open up schools. And if two or three percent mm. of kids die, it's all right. You oh see? My God. So, yeah. And, and so, so, so it's important to understand that there are health researchers who have been paid by certain companies to do things. And, and this is a fact. Um, there are, and I, I don't remember the exact studies, but we, I did read a systematic review um, and a couple of papers that mentioned, that looked at the uh, conclusions of whether sugar-sweetened beverages are harmful. And they saw that some of the studies who said it's not harmful um, and, and, and instead said it's okay as long as you do exercise uh, were funded by the sugar-sweetened beverage industry. Yep. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And 
so we do know there is bogus research, either finance or somebody's gaining something or benefiting something. We do know that there are health professionals who gain money from pharma companies, who gain money from GMO products. And I'm not saying that any of these industries are bad like that. I'm not saying the pharma, is, pharma industry is bad. No, no, they're doing some great job. But mm -hmm. I'm just saying there, there's always rotten apples everywhere. Look at the case of vitamin C and uh, when you have a cold or you have a flu, vitamin C and that. It's something that I spoke about on CBC and it's something that I actually got hate mail for. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's funny. I, I say don't, I said if you don't have a vitamin deficiency, don't take vitamins. Instead, you should, you can get your daily vitamin intake from eating fruits and vegetables. And somebody tells me that, oh, um, you have been paid by the pharma industry. I don't know how oh I've been paid God. by the, <laughs> I don't know how I've been paid by the pharma industry. While I'm trying to take away the multi-billion dollar business they have on vitamins by educating right. people on what's right. <laughs> so I, I didn't get that logic. But, but that's a funny thing. Now, I had a friend of mine um, who was a pharmacist and he told me, hey, are you sure you're right? He's a pharmacist, mind you. Um, and, and, and then I, I gave him various research. Uh, the Cochrane Review did a nice uh, review on this topic. And they found that there is no substantial benefit to taking vitamin C when it comes to preventing a cold. Um, similarly, um, uh, Harvard Health also had a nice read um, on their website about this topic. But now, if you look at research, if you look at individual research, you will find there are some research that says, oh, vitamin C has a benefit, and there are a good number uh, uh, of well-done research. They had uh, uh, better controls, they had uh, a larger sample size that, that showed that it had no benefit. Now, what does this mean? And the point that I'm trying to get to is sometimes the research water is murky because mm -hmm. there are people influencing it. There are entities influencing it because we do know that research impacts policy, research impacts the media, research impacts how people perceive things to a certain extent. And so there is always entities trying to muddy up the research. And I think the onus is also not only on the researchers themselves and the institutions as well to make sure that the research that is conducted is accurate and fair, um, but also the onus is on medical journals. How many, how many of these journals, um, how many fake journals there are? Many of them. You, mm -hmm. you all know there are predatory journals out there. How many people yep. in the public know that? Not that many, you know. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and this, this was not this, this is not something that is normally shared with the public, which I think is an error. Um, the other thing also. It is to realize um, that I think, and especially when you see this COVID-19 thing. So, for example, the study that was done in France about hydroxychloroquine, right. um, uh, the, the board of the journal, um, if I'm not mistaken, had uh, said that this study um, has a lot of flaws and it didn't meet their standard or criteria. Similarly, a lot of health professionals and researchers looked at it and the study did have a lot of flaws, but it's already published, Right. How do you retract it back when it has already gone all over the media? It has reached worldwide. So I think, I think the onus also comes on journals in terms of being very, very, um, um, to have a very strong scrutiny when they are looking at papers, especially at a time like this when the research is in high demand. Everybody wants to know about COVID-19. Journals want to publish and get a, a higher citation. Well, that doesn't mean we loosen up uh, our peer review process. Right. And for that that paper, I believe, I think the sample size was very small and it wasn't even a double-blind study. You're right. Right. So it is important to have experts like you educating the public about what public health information is true versus what isn't. But how can each person differentiate between correct information and misinformation on their own? 
Mm, that's a that's a, that's a good point, and and it's it's not easy. I mean, this is why we are in this <laughs> uh, in this situation in the first place, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think you see one of the things is, um, and and I do this with a couple of other researchers, um, is when we share something, we do sort of break it down or make a summary, or we do sort of highlight certain points. Um, so, for example, um, if you share a study. Um, or if you share um, an article, it's good to highlight the points and then if there's any flaws or there's anything of concern to highlight that as well. Um, I think also it's important whenever you share something or whenever someone is reading something, um, they should look at whether there's a source attached to it. I'm, I'm, I, I keep telling this to people that if you share something, um, even if it's true and you don't put the source there, you are kind of... Uh, in this culture that it's okay to share things, right? Mm-hmm. If you have a source or a link to the source, why not stick it in there? Why not paste it in there? So for mm-hmm. example, during the start of the COVID-19 pandemic, there were various people sharing um, the the number of cases um, on Twitter. One such mm-hmm. person was a well-known journalist. Um, he shared that Ecuador had a couple number of cases, I believe. And uh, then he retracted it. I think it was Reuters that actually claimed that and then they retracted it. Now, my question to the person who shared it to me was like, why did you have to share this? Why couldn't you share the WHO situation reports which are coming out every day? <laughs> and the question for me to him is, and, and, he's, and he's somebody who's, who's in the public and who, who just wants to know and stay well informed. My question is, how much of a difference does it make for you particularly to know whether Ecuador has a case today or instead of 24 hours later when the WHO situation report comes out? Mm. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like how much of a difference does it make to you? Right? Yeah. Right. So I That's think, true. I think Very some, true. yeah. So I think sometimes it's, it's to just be cognizant of the fact that are we just sharing because, you know, we want to be part of the, you know, the club. Hey, I'm sharing right. some cool stuff, right. you know? Right. <laughs> or, or is it because, yeah, we are sharing because uh, we know it's true and then, and then, and then, and then it goes forward and we actually are sure that this is going to benefit someone. So that brings me to, um, a question I always ask people, you know, what criteria makes up a, a good or credible source? Because the answer can't simply be that a credible source comes from governments or health professionals, because as we've discussed today, there are situations where people who we rely on for accurate and correct information aren't providing it to us. So we have to be aware as a society that each individual person or organization might be having their own intentions and agenda for sharing information or even you know we talk about misinformation sometimes it's about and i think you alluded to this earlier it's about how the correct information is framed so by the time you you finish framing a message you might lose the original evidence and you might end up miscommunicating things to people yeah i mean you're right, and 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 it is tough, especially in the world we live today, and especially because when if we look at the world in general, um, there are governments and regimes that have poli- poli- uh, politicized uh, COVID nineteen, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, by by saying it's a deep state thing, by saying it's a, it's a fraud, it's a failure, it's made in lab, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So there is there is that element. Um, I think, however, if you look at things, if you look at the World Health Organization, the CDC, the Public Health Agency of Canada, Health Canada, and some ministries of health um, in various countries, they have been pretty accurate, okay? Um, for us in Canada, I think 
the public health agency, Health Canada, and uh, the chief medical officers of health, mm-hmm. as well as the public health unit, have done a great job when it comes to messaging. Um, they normally look at things. There's normally checks and balances. And I think if there's an error, they would they would uh, they would say it. So, for example, I remember um, uh, the chief medical officer of health of Alberta tweeted. Uh, something and she made a slight error in some one of the statistics and then she immediately uh retweeted and said sorry i made an error in this number and this is the right one right mm. okay and that and that was perfect that was perfect yeah. that's exactly how it's supposed to be done um and, and i think uh, also when i look at when i look at the question you asked it comes also on, on how we we perceive uh, as health authorities public health experts health professionals how we perceive uh, the public, right? So, mm-hmm. are you afraid that if you make a mistake and you say sorry, the public will crucify you? Um, mm. Are you fearful of that? Um, and and, and I'm, I'm not saying this gives a leeway for you to make mistakes. No, but in case something happened, you should be ready to take responsibility for it. Um, and and this also comes to governments at the end of the day is. Are they thinking just about the next election or are they thinking of things in the long term, right? Right. Um, yeah. and, and I think that, that, that plays to so many other things in public health, but also in terms of how we communicate things. Um, and there's also the matter of transparency, which has come up quite a bit during this pandemic, if you have seen, right, on the news? Yes. Um, I think that's a, that's a tough one also. And I'll tell you why. I'm a big fan of transparency. But again, when, when public health authorities were looking at how they can, um, how they can present the models, they wanted to present it in a way that, yes, uh, the true data shows that public health measures are working. And so they, are, they, they do want people to know that and see that, and that there's a brighter future. But at the same time, they don't want people to get too overconfident. Yeah. And, right. and this all comes back to risk communication having that balance between increasing the risk enough so that people actually take uh, action and there's behavior change, but also not uh, increasing it too much that people are fearful and panic. At the same time, you don't want to make the risk so little in your communication that people just think, oh, this is just a flu. Well, it is not. Exactly. So the pandemic is a rapidly evolving situation, and we as society must be aware that evidence could change and health officials are doing their best to combat the spread of misinformation. We would like to thank you, Dr. Sajad Fazal, for incredible insight you provided on the topic of health misinformation. Thank you, Dr. Fazal. All right, thanks so much, guys. Take Thank care. Take care. Thank you. COVID-19 is directly impacting the lives of billions of people all around the world. Simultaneously, there is another ongoing pandemic occurring on the World Wide Web called the infodemic. The conversation today highlighted why public health and broader society should take health misinformation seriously because when many people act on the health misinformation, it can impede the progress and undermine efforts of many public health measures. In order to appropriately be prepared for the next public health crisis, we must develop a deeper understanding of health misinformation concepts. We must also proactively create an action plan to address the spread of misinformation on the internet and other social media platforms. Because the impacts are real, and like COVID-19, decisions based on health misinformation can also cost many lives. Thanks for listening. Remember, 
Public health is a field of inquiry and an arena for action to improve lives one population at a time. This has been the Public Health Insight Podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, please drop us a like and follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your podcast platform of choice. You can also send us your questions, comments, and suggestions for discussion topics at thepublichealthinsight.gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode.